everyone, and welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. My name is Aaron. And I'm Rustin. Every two weeks, Russ and I get together to discuss topics in the field of ecology, natural history, and evolution. Absolutely. And this time around, we're discussing birds, which I was so excited about. <laughs> it's the bird episode. Long time coming. So freaking hype for this one. Ah, uh, it's going to be great. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it for a while. Was this one easy for you or was it difficult in that there were too many things you wanted to cover? I could have gotten any number of different ways with this one, but there was one that pretty much stood out right from the get-go that I knew I was going to want to talk about just because of how weird it is. But yeah, there, it's one specific species anyway. What about yourself? Uh, you know what? I always had like one or two that I had like I had some knowledge about. Tossed a couple ideas around, and then I, I found something I think it's solid. I think it was interesting. Yeah, what's interesting about birds is that we have a lot of really cool birds around us in North America, but when you go to the tropics, man, birds get really weird really, really quick. I feel like most animals get better in the tropics. There's only a couple I can think of where that's the opposite. I guess, but I mean, with birds, though, like food is so plentiful that Birds can just get really colorful and weird and wacky. Oh, yeah, they're funky looking. They really are. I mean, just look at the birds of paradise. But that holds true throughout a lot of the tropics anyway. All right. Am I up or are you up? I am up. And uh, you kind of gave me the quick segue <laughs> there. Because, you know, everyone, when they think birds, they think, oh, beautiful, colorful birds of paradise. I'm going to be discussing vultures today. Naturally. So I'm going to be talking about the Indian vultures. Have you heard anything about these? Uh, Not specifically the Indian ones, no. Okay, well, there's a, a good bit of history here. So I'll discuss the basics of the vultures. I'll talk about the reason for their collapse, the population collapse, and the effect that it had on the environment. Buckle in. So we'll start off with the basics of the vultures. In India, there are several species of vulture. I am not going to go over each one individually. I am kind of going to lump them all together. There's about nine species in total. The most predominant are the vultures in the genus Gyps, and they tend to be larger and the more common species. These guys are known as the Old World Vultures, or the Griffin Vultures, and they're a vulture. Yeah, they're stereotypical. They're bald, big birds of prey feeding on corpses. Classic guys. That term has always been a little bit odd to me because it includes vultures, but vultures don't really do any praying. They just kind of do a lot of looking around, you know? They're just really late, if anything. <laughs> <laughs> we can't rule out the fact that they are active predators. They're just really slow and bad at their job. Right. They're not birds of prey. They're birds after prey. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, okay. Well, when I hear birds of prey, I always think, you know, that's the prey birds, the, the ones that everyone eats. That's what I associate. Right, that too. That's another problem. But I would call them the birds of predators. Or, or predator birds or something like predator that. Predator birds, much better. Yeah. I mean, like, the term raptor, I understand. Like, that makes sense. You're talking about a specific kind of bird in a specific shape that are all closely related. That makes sense to me. But birds of prey just seems like a, a weird term overall, and one that doesn't really apply based on its connotations. 
I also really don't like the term Raptors for them, just because as a kid, that caused a lot of confusion. You know, you see someone, they say they're a Raptor trainer and you're rushing to like the exhibit at the zoo. You want to see what's going on. It's just a weird guy with a glove. This is not a Raptor. It's just just a little bird sitting there. You expect to see Chris Pratt in Jurassic World? (laughs) Yeah, using the clicker in his right hand. That's not how you use a clicker, by the way. As if he wouldn't just immediately get eaten, but anyway. Hey, 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 he's the alpha. How? Why? I don't know. He said so. Anyways, so the name Gyps in their genus comes from the ancient Greek word for vulture. So these guys are your stereotypical vultures. They're actually kind of intimidating. Some species in this genus can get wingspans of up to eight feet or two and a half meters. I mean, that's a big bird. Not the biggest bird, but nothing to scoff at. No, not at all. Of course, vultures are carrion eaters, and generally speaking, animals that eat the dead don't have the best public perspective. So think like maggots. People don't really like maggots that much. In some cultures, they're dirty. They are the trash birds. Some people view them in recent years as potential carriers for disease. And in the past, they've been attributed to death or just bad omens. That makes sense. In the West, vultures are not always that beloved. I think there might be some differences culturally in like uh, other parts of the world. But I'm just kind of summing up the Western view. I don't think people love vultures. People don't look at them and give them a thumbs up. They're not that beloved. People don't really adore or idolize, don't really stand in awe of vultures the way they do other species. And that's a problem because vultures are up there with some of the most threatened bird species alive today. Yeah. I feel like most of the birds of prey are generally the more threatened birds proportionally. I'd say the most the birds that are most at risk tend to be migratory species, which in, would include a lot of birds of prey, but if you're going to talk about the actual grouping of birds, yeah, birds of prey would definitely be up there. Just because the animals at the top of the food chain are always the most vulnerable. So, that's a problem because they are threatened. And how can we improve their reputation if, you know, they're dying off and people don't really like them? Well, sometimes you don't know how good you have things until they're gone. And thus we pivot back to India. And I'm going to discuss an incident known as the Indian vulture crisis. So you can tell this isn't going to be a fun one today. Okay, I'm I'm buckled up. Hit me. In the 1970s, the vulture population in India consisted of about 40 million birds. It's a good amount. This is predominantly the gyps genus that I mentioned before, and that would be the white-rumped vulture, the Indian vulture, and the slender beak vulture. By the early 2000s, these populations had plummeted to about 19,000 vultures. Holy crap. That is bad. That is one of the steepest drops in recorded history of any animal. In 30 years? Roughly 30 years, yeah. Actually, most of it occurred in the 90s, so it was like a slight decline and then a big one. What happened? Did was oh, there? I'm going to get into that. There's, there's a whole mystery around it. Did everything in India become immortal, so there was no carrion for them to eat? Like The first reports of this started in the 90s by the Bombay Natural History Society, and at the time, no one was certain what caused this. And you kind of go through the usual suspects. Maybe there's a toxin outbreak, a pesticide or industrial contaminant, or some sort of virus or bacteria that just evolved and it was killing off all the vultures. 
Right. There's a lot of research poured into this issue. One of the first people to put together was Dr. Lindsay Oakes and his team at the Peregrine Fund. However, I found several papers all at the same time, roughly, that were all studying the same thing. And the main culprit was actually a drug known as diclofenic. So diclofenic is a popular anti-inflammatory drug. It's a pain reliever typically prescribed to people with arthritis or joint pain. Well, this drug is also prescribed to livestock, cattle specifically. And Uh cattle functions Uh just the same as it does for people. However, for vultures, it is an incredibly deadly toxin. You might be kind of piecing everything together now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So vultures are unable to break it down. They lack the enzyme to do so. So when the vultures feed on dead cattle that are treated with this drug, its levels accumulate inside them. And the vultures almost always die of kidney failure from the drug. This can take as little as just a couple weeks. Yikes. Kidney failure, man. That's that's a bad way to go. So these infected cattle, which would then die and be eaten by the vultures, would then kill the vultures over the span of a few days or weeks. It was very apparent this was the cause. There were a lot of studies, one of which was just them feeding raw buffalo meat laced with this drug, and sure enough, they started keeling over. So there wasn't much of a mystery in that this was playing the key role. There might have been other factors, but this was the big one. And this is why, collectively, the vulture population in India has diminished by about 95%. Damn. And this all happened in about the 90s, which is when the drug became approved for cattle. It also became much cheaper at this time, and more people could afford it and could afford to use it on their cattle. And like I said, this is one of the steepest population declines in modern history, 95% overall decline, up to 99.7% in certain species of vultures in the span of a couple decades. That's insane. It's really bad. The only ones that really weren't affected were either migratory vultures that didn't spend much time in India, or ones that lived in a mountain range and didn't interact with cattle as much. And also, when I say India, this is not just the country of India. It's actually the entire subcontinent of India. So you can also rope in Pakistan and Bangladesh and surrounding regions as well. But India seems to be where it was hit the hardest. Right. And there's a couple reasons why this only seems to happen in the Indian subcontinent. One of which is some species of vultures are more resistant I did read that vultures of the Americas are not affected as much by this drug. But the biggest thing is there are a lot of cattle in India. Oh, yeah. Yep. There's a ton. In most parts of India, cows are sacred and they aren't eaten. So there's roughly a population about 300 million, which is the most in the world, by the way, Uh that are very rarely eaten, which means a lot more of this livestock is eaten by scavengers than other countries. All those cows had been taking these painkillers. It was really just a disaster. And it doesn't help the fact that it really doesn't take much of the diclofenic to kill a vulture. So Reese Green, which was a researcher from Cambridge, modeled that less than 1% of all cattle in India have to be on this drug for the population of vultures to decline. One out of 100 cattle has to be on this drug for it to negatively affect the vultures. And at the time, it was about 10%. So 10 times the lethal amount of cattle. That seems like overkill. No pun intended. Yeah, it definitely was. And 
ordinarily the story might end here. There's kind of been a lot of silent extinctions for species that don't get much attention. Yeah. And it kind of just floats by. It goes under the rug. Not much to say. If no one really studied it in real time, it's really hard to piece together how it happened. Yeah. In a lot of cases, too, we discover species almost as they're going extinct. <laughs> they're on their way out. It's like saying hi to a coworker. They're just about to put in their time card for the weekend. It's like, oh, there it goes. Yeah, not even. You meet them for the first time as they're walking to the supervisor's office to hand in their two weeks. That's a better comparison. So ordinarily, that would be the case. But this is different because we have ample research on what happens when the vulture population shrinks. What happens when all the vultures are almost gone? So what happened? For starters, like I mentioned, vultures are scavengers and they aid in breaking down corpses. They're very good at this. I mean, this is what they're doing all the time. Without them, that role goes to other animals, which are not as good as that. These being feral dogs and rats. And these animals both tend to cause problems. Oh, yeah. Yeah, big time. So the feral dog population rose by about 5 million, leading to an increased rate of bites on humans and increased death by rabies. India Mm -hmm. actually has the most death by rabies, and this increase coincides with the decline of vultures. About 20,000 people contracted rabies per year at the lowest point of the vultures population. Even now, I still believe about 10,000 people get rabies a year. Wow. Yeah, that's really big. Rats, of course, also contribute to this problem, and they can spread other diseases as well. In parts of India, remote areas will collectively dump rotting meat on the town outskirts. There are many parts that don't have the proper infrastructure to manage dead cattle, and keep in mind that they don't eat this cattle. So historically, the vultures would do this, and they'd be great at it, and you know, good for them. We got vultures to handle that. But now we don't have the vultures. The vultures were also really good at eating the meat and not spreading pathogens. For most disease, the the end goal was kind of like the the vulture's stomach acid. It doesn't go much beyond there. But uh, with rats and dogs, it's not quite the same. Yeah, so uh, disease has spread. They aren't as efficient as cleaning up the corpses. And this also leads to issues like contaminated food and water supplies as well. So it just kind of ramps up. Hello, everyone. Some technical difficulties, but uh, we're back. Yes, we are. Basically, my Wi-Fi crapped out and a certain online podcast recording software that shall remain nameless sucks. That's all I'm going to say about that. Decided to no longer record audio for Rustin, no matter what. Yes. I can still see him. It's pretty terrible. It's pretty terrible. But regardless, carry on, Aaron. Okay, so I might have to rewind a little bit. Apologies in advance. But as I mentioned, the vultures, which were scavengers and ate in breaking down corpses, well, they're mostly gone. Without them, that role shifts to other animals, being feral dogs and rats. These animals tend to cause a lot of problems. For starters, they're not very good at that job. Vultures are really good at breaking down corpses, so much so that they actually reduce the spread of disease. Well, with feral dogs and rats, that's kind of the opposite. 
So as feral dog populations rose by about 5 million, this led to an increased rate of bites on humans and increased death by rabies. As I mentioned, rats, of course, also contributed to this problem alongside spreading other diseases as well. And as I mentioned, in parts of India, remote areas will collectively dump rotting meat outside on the town outskirts. And not all these areas have the proper infrastructure to manage dead cattle. So in these areas where vultures might historically clean that up, they're not there anymore. Instead, we have feral dogs and rats doing the job and making everything a whole lot worse in the meanwhile. So there's still a lot of research into this today. But one study found that due to the collapse of the vultures, an additional 100,000 people died per year. 100,000? 100,000 people. Yeah. I mean, India is a very big country. Still. It's not tiny by any means, but still, that is a lot of people, oh which is about God. a 4% increase in the mortality rate in the early 2000s, of course, and this was at the peak of the vulture decline. Between 1993 and 2004, it is estimated to have cost about $34 billion U.S. dollars with its estimate accounting for medical and sanitation expenses, along with the cost and loss of life and income. Wow. So ironically, the omens of death brought more death when they were no longer there. <laughs> yep, man. That's what I said. Sometimes you don't know how good things are until they're gone. They actually prevented death. Yeah, we should have been cheering them on the whole time. Yeah. So what did they do? So, the vulture population, fortunately, has improved. Diclofenic was banned for cattle usage in 2006 in India and several neighboring countries. And there's now a global awareness of diclofenic and its effect on vultures. Most countries know about this now. And several years later, the drug will be completely banned for human usage as well, along with similar medications that are also toxic to vultures. And currently, other drugs like meloxicam are now being studied and are thought to not have a toxic effect on vultures, so potentially have some substitutes available. Unfortunately, there is still some illegal usage of diclofenic in India, but I believe with public awareness combined with other medications being available, this issue will go away in time. As of the 2010s, the vultures were still dying of diclofenic, but at a much decreased rate. So the populations haven't recovered. They've just kind of maintained a certain level. Even though if they've maintained, it's just that we've slowed it down a lot. Oh, so they're just declining less. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty hard to do a full stop of this issue, but it's definitely being tackled. I'll give them credit where credit is due. There's been several successes in vulture conservation as well. Captive breeding efforts have been going on for the last 20-some years. The only issue is vultures are slow growing and they don't lay many eggs. Right. So it's really hard to build the vultures back up. And even then, they're kind of reserving that until the threat of diclofenic is fully resolved. There's still some illegal usage of the drug. So once that issue is fully fixed, then we can start releasing them and they should have tons of corpses to go through. Time of their lives. Yeah, especially all those wild dogs and rats. In addition to this, the livestock corpses are now much better regulated to reduce the spread of disease. There's now proper facilities to process dead cattle, so they're more often to be properly disposed of. Or farmers just go ahead and bury them, which isn't a perfect fix, but it's a lot better than just leaving it out there for dogs and rats. True. So this has helped prevent the increase of feral dogs and rats. Yeah, who would have thought that having dead animals all over the place would lead to a health crisis? 
Shocking. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Who would have thought? And in 2020, India announced a five-year vulture action plan to help rebound the species through a combination of, as I mentioned, captive breeding and a crackdown on the toxic drugs. Okay. However, what I think is most important of all is that the public perspective towards vultures is beginning to shift. Again, probably the most important thing in this chase. India seems to be much better than the United States in that regard. I looked online a little bit. I saw posters infographics, even International Vulture Awareness Day being celebrated there. Hey, that, that's cool to hear about, but I'm personally going to push back. I think it's more important that we stop using the toxic chemicals that are killing the vultures. Just my personal opinion. Okay, I mean, <laughs> that's not unimportant, but when it comes to uh, raising awareness, that's probably up there with one of the most important issues because if people don't know about it, people don't care. Sure, sure. But people are eventually going to wonder why there are so many decaying corpses around that are being eaten by rats and dogs. Yeah, like this is definitely an issue that is affecting people. So I feel like people would become aware of it one way or another. Whereas actually getting rid of these chemicals that are killing the vultures would really be the ultimate solution to the problem. All right, you got me there, but it helps. I mean, people want to know what their tax dollars are being put I'm towards. not saying it doesn't help. I'm, I never said it wasn't important at all. I'm saying that the most important thing is probably still getting rid of the chemical. Yeah, that's it's up there. Eh, not going to lie on that. But like I said, public perspective is still good. I mean, these guys are never going to be quite on the giant panda level in terms of conservation, raising money for them. Well, yeah. But through education, people will realize how important they are. And I think other countries should follow suit in that regard. They're not cute. Vultures are just really goddamn ugly. You know, like... You can't put that on a keychain. Yeah. The... You can't sell stuffed vultures and expect them to be a hot seller. At least, like, not outside of Halloween, you know? Like, at Halloween, <laughs> it adds to the ambiance, you know? Hmm. You get a graveyard, you get some stuffed vultures in there, it's great, but... Outside of that season, they're just not that appealing. They're not. They're shelf warmer. They're just sitting there. Right. And we've talked about this before. A lot of species that are really important but aren't necessarily appealing to people get really overlooked in situations like this. They really get shafted. Yeah, exactly. Regardless of how important they are, even to humans, much less, you know, their environments that still affect humans, but more indirectly. So as of now, all the griffin vultures are critically endangered. But large birds of prey have come back from the brink before. True. I know we had condors out west in California. I don't think they fully recovered, oh, but no. they were at about 22 individuals. Yeah, it was bad. It's gotten a lot better, but the bigger success story would be the bald eagle. Oh, I didn't even think of bald eagle. Yeah, DDT. Yep. Look at banning one chemical right there. That's a quick rebound. Yep. Of course, that's our national bird, and I don't think the vultures are the national bird of India. No. No, they're not. And so the battle there is more uphill. People aren't going to be as involved in saving the vultures as they are going to be in saving the bald eagles. Although, then again, the bald eagles were never involved in preventing rabies. So... That's true. Yeah, actually, the, the vultures had a bit of a better perspective in India even before this crisis began. So there are some groups of people, one being the Parsi in particular, and they do something known as sky burials, and is essentially just... you put the dead on a large platform in the air and let vultures eat them. Really? Yeah. I mean, it, it's not for everyone. I imagine. <laughs> Probably uh, not. <laughs> it, 
I didn't say it was immensely popular, but I said that people did it. Okay. And unfortunately, because of the diminished amount of vultures, this might be banned because it takes too long for the bodies to break down. Right, right. Plus, imagine giving a eulogy for somebody over the sound of a bunch of squawking vultures. (laughs) Could you wait ten minutes? (laughs) Do you need to rip open his intestines now? I'm still talking about his childhood, goddammit. Yeah, grandkids are traumatized in the front, and one of them is flying off with a granddad's spleen. But again, it, this is the culture. They've done it historically for years, and it'd be a shame if they could no longer do it. Yeah, yeah, it would. I mean, I'm not opposed to the idea. I When I kick the bucket, I'm of the opinion, put me in a burlap sack and throw me in the ground. Put a tree over me. Like, uh, when I'm dead, just throw me in the trash. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm of that perspective as well, so I'm not judging. Yeah, I, personally, I'm I'm all about being cremated. Cremate me and put me somewhere nice. Or don't. I don't care. I'll be dead. Yeah, I'll be dead. I don't have a lot of say in it. Like, do whatever, do whatever you feel makes you happy. That's all. And that's about it for my piece i will just end on there is a quote by douglas adams and i couldn't find the exact quote it was along the lines of the sad reality is that conservation of wildlife needs to be fueled by an economic incentive yes and in this case we we saw it caused a lot of issues when we didn't have the vultures there's your economic incentive yep turns out the vultures do way more for rabies prevention than even michael scott i forgot about that episode it's a good one Alright, so, ready for my bit? Yeah, yeah, give it to me. Okay, so typically when I open my topic, I'll do some sort of long intro about my process for approaching this overall theme and how I view it, but in this case I don't really have one. I'm just going to come right out and say it. I'm going to be talking about the Hoetzin. Do you have any idea what I that is? I vaguely remember this. You do? I vaguely remember it. Oh, yes. cool. Okay. I remember taxonomically it's on its own right correct correct and i'll be talking more about that yeah do you remember anything else about this bird remember it looked weird i don't know how it looked weird but i know it did yeah really weird really freaky looking birds i'm gonna force aaron to put a picture of them on the x page when we post this episode because you really need to see a picture to get the full effect but hopefully i'll give you a really good idea in this piece i'm also going to come out right and say at the beginning that I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce this word. Like, I've seen it written down. Google? Google wasn't helpful because Google provided a couple different pronunciations. Actually, there were like four of them. Well, you couldn't take the average or something? That's not how linguistics works, Aaron. That's how math works. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you, man. I couldn't couldn't find a middle ground. So, I'm going to go with Hoatzin for this episode. I've also heard Watson. Or Watson? Yeah, there are a bunch of different pronunciations, but I'm going to go with... Watson? Yes. Like Watson and Holmes Watson? More or less, yeah. I'm willing to bet it's not that one. Like Watson, the question, and then an evil act. But I'm going to go with Hoatson for this one. That makes more sense to me. The Hoatson is a bird native to the rainforests, mangroves, and swamps of South America. As I mentioned before, they're quite unique looking. My description of them would be that they look like really fabulous turkeys. Perhaps an iguana dressed as a bird for Halloween. They kind of have this reptilian look about them and their feathers are streaky with like this nice gold plumage and they have like exposed blue skin around their eyes and 
Really, really unique and cool looking birds. But the logical place to start with any bird really is the egg because, after all, the egg did come first. Poetsons lay eggs during the rainy season in clutches of about two to three. One unique thing about these birds is that they take a while to learn how to fly, like 70 days. Is that bad? Right. To put this in perspective, most songbirds have fledged within a few weeks, and they can at least like flutter around branches. They can't fly very well, but they can at least kind of fly. Poets and chicks are totally helpless in terms of flying more than two months. I'm sure they're trying their best. Probably, but... They don't have to shame them for it. They don't have flight feathers, man. What else are they going to do? Everyone knows it. (laughs) Are you going to single out the kid in the sixth grade that still can't tie his shoe? Well... Everyone point and laugh at him. No, that's not what I'm doing. I'm saying the entire sixth grade can't tie their shoes, and all the sixth graders are like, yeah, what do you want from us? None of us can tie our shoes. So, like, I can't single out a single one of them. All the Hoetsons are like this. They suck equally. Exactly. They're all in the same boat, so it's okay. But, like, 70-day period is about as long as it takes a lot of hawks and eagles. The problem for Hoetzins is that they're prey animals. They're not apex predators, right? So if you're a hawk or an eagle chick, you can afford to take a little bit more time developing your flight feathers because nothing's really trying to eat you. Like, you've got these big scary parents flying around, and, you know, they'll just kill anything that comes close. If you're a prey animal... You don't necessarily have that advantage because things are also trying to eat, hunt and eat your parents. They're in kind of a pickle in that regard. So without the ability to fly, the chicks have pretty limited options for escape. What options do you have really as a young chick if a predator comes along, right? Interestingly enough, the Hoetzins have two options and both of them involve skills and attributes that they lose once they become adults. The first one is that they swim. So Baby Hoetzins are exceptional swimmers, and this is from the time they're five or six days old. So it's really just an instinct with them. And again, the adults can't do this at all. Um, Hoetzins will actually build their nests on or right near water. So that way, like, when the young need to escape from predators, they can just drop into the water and swim away. So it's a legitimate survival tactic. Yeah, I know a lot of lizards do that too. Right. Right, makes a lot of sense. Um, this all- catfish love it. <laughs> I'm sure they do. But <laughs> they're just waiting there, right at the bottom. But hey, that's that's you know a problem for a few minutes. That's the immediate yeah, problem. I mean, if the threats, if the threat is in the nest, you're willing to take that gamble. Right, right, exactly. This also means that Hoetzins kind of have a lot of territoriality associated with their species. Like, they don't nest colonially, they kind of nest, they nest territorially. And so, property, much like with humans, property along the water is very valued. A lot of times, the young Hoetzins, once they, even once they become adults, they don't really go off and find their own nesting areas for a few years. They stay and help raise the chicks. Because nesting territory is at a premium. And so, it makes more sense for them to stay and help raise their younger siblings, basically, rather than go off and have their own kids. Anyway, I digress, though. The second method you have of escape is climbing, because baby Hoetzins actually have claws on their wings, and they are the only bird species to have these claws at any stage of their life. These claws make it very easy for them to climb around trees and escape from predators that way, and also to climb back into trees from the water when they're swimming. And again, these are claws that they will lose as adults. They only have them when they're young. 
And are they at like the end of the wing or like so they're kind of midway points? Yeah, they're kind of at that midway point. The the bird wing has that joint that's comparable roughly to like our wrist. That's right where the claw is, and the claw extends forward, so they can use it as like a little little thingy to grab onto branches and twigs and bark and stuff and move around trees really well. Which, if you live in a rainforest, is a very handy attribute to have. What is remarkable about these claws, though, is that the claws move in unison with the opposite rear limb. So, in other words, they move as chicks in the same way that humans do, right? Our arms and legs move in the same way, right? Our hands and arms move naturally with our feet, with our opposite leg, when you're walking. Right? Okay. So, like, how you sway your arms as you walk. And also think about a lot of, like, four-legged animals like a dog or a horse when it's kind of trotting or walking around the opposite front and rear legs move in unison when they're moving. There are some species that break this mold like camels, but for the most part, the opposites are paired together. This is how the Hoatzin chicks move. So their limbs are paired when they're young, but when they're adults, they're not. And this is a really unique phenomenon among birds because among birds, the forelimbs are completely unsynced with the rear limbs because the forelimbs are wings and so it wouldn't make sense if you're flying if your feet were kind of also doing this weird flappy dance you know that your wings are doing because they're paired together again this is an attribute that the adults don't have at all they only have this attribute as chicks this weird paired movement of the limbs at least weird for birds anyway once they finally survive to adulthood by swimming and climbing away from predators and using their weird little alien claws, they exhibit what is probably the most unique aspect of this remarkably unique species, which is that they eat leaves. I think I remember this now. Okay, so, again, they are really the only bird species to do this. And the problem with a leaf-eating diet is that leaves are low in nutrients and very difficult to break down. So mammals like cows, they get around this by having multiple stomachs and mutualistic relationships with bacteria and a very, very complicated digestive system. Much more complicated than ours. Yeah, a very long one, too. Yes, it takes a while and it produces a lot of byproducts, which is why cows are always belching. And that that's a whole other thing. But these bacteria are useful to break down leaf tissue because the leaf tissues contain cells that have cell walls, which are really difficult for us to break down. And Hudson's have like a very similar kind of setup. There are actually over a thousand different species of bacteria which have been found in the crops of Hudson's. Some of these species are also present in the hindguts of cows and other, you know, herbivorous mammals. Some are unique to the birds. To put this in perspective, the human digestive system has about 400 species of bacteria. So it's far, far more diverse than ours is. And so it's not surprising that a lot of people call the Hoatzin the flying cow. Because that's basically what they are. But. Seems a bit demeaning. Kind of. But it's also fitting. Right. It's only demeaning because of the like connotation we have associated with calling someone a cow. Yeah, well, you could call them the flying koalas for that matter. They eat leaves. I'd rather be called a flying cow than a flying koala, personally. Koalas are dumb as hell. They are dumb. Yeah, I'd rather be called a cow than be called stupid. How smart are the uh, Watson? They're about average for birds. 
nothing too crazy or out of out nothing of here. Right home about smarter than koalas, though. Again, not saying much. Most birds will have this organ called a crop, which allows them to store items, usually just for transport. So, like, think about like a blue jay. If it finds a whole lot of acorns and doesn't want to eat all of them, it'll store a bunch of them in the crop in its neck, and then fly somewhere else and store them for later. Right. It's a really useful organ for a lot of birds. But in the Hoatzin, it has become modified so that it can host symbiotic bacteria that I was just talking about and help it break down the leaves. So rather than becoming just like a weird storage space, it's actually a huge part of their digestive tract, right? Again, mm-hmm. really unique among birds. Crops are found throughout bird species, but Hoatzin have actually modified that organ to help with digestion. What's interesting, though, is that young Hoatzins are not born with these bacteria. So how do you think they get them? I know exactly how they get it. They got to eat the poo. Uh, kind of. No, actually, no. They get, the, no? they get the bacteria from their parents when they receive regurgitated food as chicks. Okay, it was one way or the other. Yeah. I had a 50-50 shot. Some kind of waste coming out of one end or the other. You went for the poo. In fact, it was the vomit. Yeah, well, I, I lost the coin toss on this one. I, I'll admit. Yeah, you were uh, picking the wrong end of the ice cream cone, as it were. Anyway, the issue with, with this and all of these extra digestive processes is that they require organs which take up space, right? So the crop is larger, it takes up more space, the intestines are larger. You just need a lot more of your body dedicated to breaking down leaves when that is the main part of your diet. Just because, again, leaves are so difficult to break down. And so this means that you got to sacrifice some space somewhere else, right? Some other organ or muscle group has to be smaller so you can fit all this extra stuff. And so for Watsons, the organs which are proportionally smaller are their breast muscles. In other words, the muscles which allow most other birds to fly. This means that the Watson is a terrible flyer. Like just god awful. One of the worst. They seem like the pandas of the birds in the sense that they really worked themselves into a corner in an evolutionary standpoint. They really did, yeah. They did. We need to dedicate our diet to eating leaves. We have to develop new tissues to process these leaves. What do we trade off? How about flight? How about the one thing that makes us a bird for the most part? (laughs) We don't need that. When danger comes, we'll jump into the water and start climbing around. Well... It's funny you should mention pandas, because much like pandas, for Watsons, the digestive process takes so much time and energy that the birds actually just spend most of their time just lounging around. (laughs) Which, I I mean, it makes sense, because it can take up to 45 hours for them to digest leaves, so almost two days. And it's actually such an involved process that the Watsons are often incapable of flying while breaking down these leaves. So not, al- not only are they bad flyers, but sometimes when they're really involved in this digestion, they physically can't fly. So it sounds like these are also the type of birds that can starve with a full stomach. Not quite, because their metabolism is... That, you're thinking about a sloth. Like a sloth, yeah. a sloth has that problem because they have really slow metabolisms. Like, oh, we could call these the flying sloths then. I think flying pandas is probably the most accurate term. 
in terms of their overall, you know, temperament. But they don't really have that problem because they have a higher metabolism. They digest things more quickly. It's not quite that bad. But again, the digestion is really, really involved. And so because they aren't great flyers and often can't even fly, even as adults, they need other ways to not get eaten, right? They live in the rainforest. There are a lot of predators around. So luckily for them, it turns out that eating leaves and having a remarkably complex digestive system has another benefit. Do you have any guesses? They stink. Exactly. Oh, that's really it. That's really it. (laughs) It makes them smell awful to the point where people actually call them stink birds. (laughs) This is a real thing. They're called the stink birds. So yeah, I'm, I'm doing a whole podcast piece about the stink birds. But the thing is, it works. Um, the awful stench has actually saved them from predation by a lot of species, especially humans. In addition to the birds smelling bad, they are apparently quite unpalatable to eat. So humans have rarely hunted them, despite the fact that they're lazy, immobile, and ripe for the taking. But they smell terrible and taste awful, so we've avoided them like the plague. They got that going for him, huh? It sounds stupid, but it works. Humans are a huge predator for a lot of species, and we've hunted so many species to extinction. But we've left the Watsons alone, despite the fact that they're just lounging around, napping in trees, and farting all over the place. But yeah, like the other thing too is, like you alluded to earlier, because of all these really unique attributes, the weird claws, digesting leaves, there aren't really any close relatives for the species and current classification strategies have the Hwatsin in its own genus family and order so for those who aren't biologists this would be the equivalent of humans being the only surviving primate species that is how distantly related Hwatsins are to everything else that is alive today I mean if the Hwatsins themselves it seems like they kind of barely pull it off in the end I can't imagine any other ones could there's room for one bird only in this niche maybe but maybe not i mean like i I didn't say that there's another species that feeds on bark and smells even worse (laughs) no but i mean generally speaking if a species has evolved to successfully occupy a niche there's probably going to be other species that come along to do the same thing that just hasn't happened with watsons right who knows how they wound up being this really isolated species on the evolutionary tree. Because that would indicate, at least to me, that they originally had other close relatives, but at some point they either kind of branched off and took this weird evolutionary track, or that this evolutionary track was really only successful enough for one species to occupy that niche. And to me... The fact that they've avoided predation, especially by humans, means that there probably was room, there probably is room for more than one leaf-eating bird. But for... Leaf-eating bird, maybe not. Leaf-eater, I mean, sure, there's tons of stick insects. And... Oh, sure, sure, sure. Leaf-eating bird is what there's I'm There's tons of about. insects that eat leaves, but birds, I feel like that's pushing it, because then we would have multiple pandas. True, true. But... Pandas have also really not done very well in recent years. 
And the Hawatsons are fine. I can't imagine these guys have. They have. They're fine. They're not threatened. They're not in danger. People probably don't eat them, but I'm willing to bet that they're not doing well just on principle of they have slow metabolisms and they can only live in very specific areas. I got to look it up right now. Oh, never mind. Least concern. Well, you, you got me. And then sure enough, on Wikipedia, Watson slash Stinkbird. Yep, exactly. But that's what I'm saying. As soon as the real estate market develops in their area, they're gone. You're telling me people are going to want to share habitat with the Stinkbirds? Definitely not. But they occupy a, a few different habitats. Like, sure, the rainforests are disappearing, but they also occupy mangroves and low-lying swamps. In other words, areas that are very difficult for humans to develop. So they're probably going to stick around and stink around. They do look really cool, though. I'd love to see one in a zoo one day. Yes, but bring a clothespin. <laughs> yeah, noted. <laughs> but in terms of where we place them on the evolutionary tree... Some studies have suggested that the group which evolved into Watsons separated from other bird species about 64 million years ago. So, in other words, this lineage separated from most of the birds just after the dinosaurs died out. Okay, that was a that was way back. Yeah, they're that isolated from all other bird species. This lineage broke off right when the dinosaurs died out. Like They've been isolated for that long and had that much independent evolutionary time. And the actual correct classification of the Watson is still being highly debated even today. Uh, you know, even in this age of genetic analysis where we can use the genome to position things more accurately on the evolutionary tree, we're still having trouble with the Watson because some think that the Watson is most closely related to the Galliformes, which is the group that includes chickens, while others think that it should be grouped with the Cuculiformes, which is the group that includes uh, cuckoos and roadrunners. Personally, I have no idea where to put the Watson and what or what group to put it near because I'm going purely based on its appearance and the appearance of this bird really defies classification in my mind. But hey, that's what makes it a really cool bird to talk about. Yeah, that's pretty much my piece. Yeah, really cool. Really cool. A bird that I feel like a lot of people should be talking about a lot more because they're so cool. Yeah, they're freaky looking too. I, I like them though. I do too. I still think that they're working themselves into a corner there, but that's just me. I don't know how they're still around. I don't. So here's the thing. With pandas and koalas, they're pretty much just reliant on one type of food source, right? Pandas eat the bamboo. Koalas eat the eucalyptus. They don't eat anything else. Watsons have a pretty diverse array of different trees that they feed on. So... You know, if one goes away, they can just move on to another. And those are just the trees that they like to eat. They can feed on, you know, 50 different tree species. So they're generalists in that regard, at least far more than other species like koalas and pandas. So they're not really as at risk as those species are. They're not as dependent on one food source. I don't know. If you're a bird and your main defense to evade a predator is either smell bad or jump out the window... I feel like things can't be going that well for you. Yes, but smelling bad and jumping out the window have been remarkably effective for them because they've been around for millions of years. So, hey, farting and swimming away from predators turns out to be really, really effective. How about that? I bet you didn't think that would be the conclusion of my bird piece. 
No, I didn't. I did not know anything beyond that they were very distinct. And I think I remembered the claw bit. Didn't know about the leaves. Yeah. Yeah. The claw bit is especially interesting because it has led some to think that they're more closely related to dinosaur species. I couldn't find anything definitive on that. And that's basically just speculation at this point. But given how uniquely positioned they are among the bird family tree, like who knows where they could wind up falling. That's pretty much my piece, man. All right. Well, really cool. I liked it. All right. So we talked about this a little bit before when we weren't recording, but what are you thinking about for next episode? Yeah, we we talked about urban wildlife. Yes. A lot of cool animals out there. A lot of very cool animals. And I, I have a, I have the perfect animal to talk about. It's going to be great. I don't want to give too much away, though, at least not at the current moment. So, with that decided, do you want to take us out? Yep. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a follow or review on your podcast app of choice. If you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can contact us at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com or on x at souppotpodcast. All right. Sounds good. And until next time, I'm Rustin. And I'm Aaron. See ya.